0: Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K 12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. I have three graphic novels out. In addition to self-published works, I have a master's degree in art education. And I am a PhD
1: student in the University of Florida's English program. My research focuses on gender, critical prison studies, and museum studies. Um, And I also make mostly self-published
0: comics. So, welcome back, Remus. Um, Here we are in our introduction here. Here we are on episode 30. Episode 30! And (laughs) we are titling this episode Distance Learning and Mutual Aid Pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like it is the, not quite an elephant in the room because we are all constantly talking about it every day of our lives, but Mm -hmm. the scope of education has really changed quite dramatically for the majority of Mm -hmm. teachers, administrators, and students. We have all moved to online learning, also known as distance learning, to try to Mm -hmm. accommodate things that aren't necessarily online, but we are keeping our distance due to the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. Right. I think I'm also interested in saying today we are recording this on Thursday, April 30th, 2020 right yeah we should probably start dating
1: (laughs) yeah it feels it feels really pertinent because things change a lot quickly yeah really quickly in the intro we also wanted to note that we're kind of trying um a new approach to drawing a dialogue um we had a long phone conversation was that last week uh uh two weeks ago maybe two weeks i have lost track of time we had a long phone conversation it's all blurring together really hard (laughs) Um, where we were, you know, we were talking about how we wanted to do this episode and also if we wanted to sort of, not like radically change, right, but sort of Mm -hmm. adapt how we've been working towards something different because, um, it's not really a secret that both of us are very disillusioned with, (laughs) um, Kathy has written here the ivory tower, um, (laughs) with academia, sort of institutionalized academia, um, yeah. It, I You know, I I talk about this a lot, but I think it's so interesting that when I went into grad school, like, I went into grad school being like, I don't trust academia, yes. right? And I still managed to be, like, very shocked and let down. Oh. <laughs> so, like I, don't, like, I felt like I went in, like, thinking it was great, but I still, like, anyway. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think there is... Um, I mean, we've talked about it for 29 episodes now, about how we value research, we value citations, we value careful scholarship. Um, However, the way in which that manifests often feels like it manifests with a supremacy, with Mm -hmm. different biases, bigotries, and greed frankly Mm -hmm. and I think our conversation today might highlight that but also I also wanted to start to embrace our professionalism our Mm what's the word I'm thinking of our expertise right we have been educators Mm -hmm. for a few years now we have almost been I hold a master's degree but Remus might be holding a master's degree Shortly, I'm defending in June. Yes, <laughs> so we are we are becoming the experts, and so uh, mm-hmm. we want to maybe see how we can shift away from such a focus on um, academic research and see mm-hmm. what we can do outside of that. Yeah, was all that fair for me to say? Yeah, I think that's
1: a fair way to put it. Cool. Um, because the, the the idea we had is that like we still want to do research because we love doing research, yes. but we don't want it to be. These don't have to be like conference papers anymore,
0: <laughs> right? Like, this could be like, yeah, kind of more a, of a dialogue, <laughs> yeah, and and a more of a dialogue on our <laughs> podcast of drawing a dialogue. Um, but I also wanted to, but also something that I we really both value so much is citation. is – yeah. Not stealing the words of others. So we are yes. going to always um, hold on to that anti colonialism mindset. We're going to tr- always be striving for that as well. Mm-hmm. Given that, we uh, we still have segments because I love a segment. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now it's uh, Remus's turn.
1: Yeah, now it's my turn. I honestly don't know. In terms of the segments, I don't think the. I'm still always going to be like a theory boy.
0: Yeah. So and that's like the thing. It's like, <laughs> I think our natural inclination is going to keep going in the <laughs> theory based segment. Mm-hmm. And then the more boots on the ground segment. But the thing is that mm-hmm. we're both interested in theory and we're both interested in one-on-one pedagogy. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So like Kathy said, this episode, we're sort of talking
1: about the COVID-19 pandemic and how – I think we're both sort of talking about how like we've had to adapt as educators, right. Yes. To this new idea of distance learning. And so I'm going to give like a, I think we're both doing this, but I'm going to start by giving like a brief rundown of what UF, where I go um, to school, university of Florida kind of did the timeline there. um, And then talk about some stuff that like my colleagues and I have done in response basically. Cool. Um, So our spring break this year ran from march 1st to march 7th on march 9th so right after spring break um we got an email that was like you know the school's been monitoring the situation and we are encouraging all instructors to move their classes online as soon as possible
0: oh that's kind of early march
1: 9th yes yeah we actually did i i will like that's i will say that like i'm gonna <laughs> i to rag on uf a little bit but i will say that like i think part of the reason that alachua where i live gainesville um hasn't been hit very hard is because students were encouraged to leave so early mm-hmm. um that like there's there's just not that many people in the city and i think that definitely has contributed to why like we just don't have that many cases comparatively
0: would you say it's a lot it's like a college town yeah okay. it's, like,
1: it's it's yeah yeah um and i'm yeah um so march 9th we are encouraged that wasn't mandatory just like we're encouraging this we think it might become mandatory by the end of that week i think literally like two or three days later it had become mandatory yeah (laughs) um and the thing about that is that the all of the instructors got the email um hey you need to move your classes online literally the same time as the students um so we didn't really get any time to prepare Mm. we didn't really get any information the students didn't have which caused a lot of confusion a lot of uncertainty. Um, a, like, a lot of the undergraduates just didn't really have a good sense of this, what the situation was, because, you know, they're a little bit younger. Not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them, at least, like, in my experience, were, like, not quite as tuned in, right? Uh-huh. And this was before the surge of cases in the U.S. So, you know, not th- that's not justified. But it was just, like, this, like, big mad scramble, you know, all of us. And I, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, but, like, my position is uh, both a teacher and a student, right? right? So I'm a graduate student. I go to classes, but I'm also – An instructor and I'm not a TA. I don't assist a professor. I'm a lead instructor. So I design my own courses. I lead my own courses, Um, which is an important distinction because there are graduate assistants who are like TAs who are helping a professor and it's like a little bit different in that Mm -hmm. case. But so, you know, like those of us that were leading our own classes were put in this wild position of having to in week 10 of a weeks of a 16-week semester, um, just shift at the drop of the hat everything we were doing to online. Right. And UF's policy for this was very clear that it was to be minimize disruptions, keep teaching, basically act as though everything was normal, but move it online. So we got, like, we weren't allowed to cancel classes. We got, like, scolded for that. We weren't supposed to, like, change any assignments. You weren't supposed to, like, drop anything. Like, it, it was, like, very insistent that, like, we just somehow... Transfer it one to one online, Um, be flexible, of course, because like the undergraduates are going through a lot. But from the university standpoint, they were much more focused on, quote, minimizing disruptions, whatever that means.
0: Yeah. And can I ask, and at the same time, are students, they have to move? So at that moment, no. They were encouraged
1: to leave by March 30th. um, Okay. But the dorms didn't close, um, and the dorms for this semester have stayed open. Um, oh, so
0: okay. So the dorms yeah, are still open.
1: Yeah. for But I'll talk a little bit more about the tricky side of that. It's We're yeah. a public institution, so it's a little bit, like, different than, like, the private schools who are like, get out, we're closing the dorms, you know what I mean? Right. Okay. And we also have a really high population of international students. Okay. Um so it, they didn't they didn't close the dorms. They just sort of encouraged as many people to go home as could go home basically. Um and a majority of students like just being a person who lives in the city, like it's pretty empty. Um I think you know UF has a population of roughly 60,000. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if more than half left wow. like based on how empty it's been. It hasn't been like deserted, but it's definitely Around the same levels as when it's summer and like people go home and stuff.
0: So students are moving, but also some of them are, but also at the same time, you're being told that classes cannot be canceled. Right. Okay. And also keep in mind again, we're also students, so we're still expected to go to class. Um,
1: <laughs> so, uh, and I mean, it's obvious, like my, I'm a humanities, um, pr- student and I take two seminars a semester. Um, so that's like a different workload than like. Um, The STEM kids who are research assistants and still were being required to go to their labs and stuff. Oh, um, mm-hmm. So, you know, complicated, huge situation. Um, I do want to say before I go any further, I want to give credit to my department specifically, especially because I know some of them listen. Um, <laughs> hi. <laughs> <laughs> hi. That, uh, my department actually was very good about, like, making sure that we were getting all the information we needed because the school – wouldn't send us information and like trying to get us as many resources as possible um, and have been generally like pretty attentive to the situation and trying to be cool as accommodating as possible and I am like very grateful for like my department's interventions. So like me critiquing UF is firmly like directed at like the institution, the admin, sort of how they've handled it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like I said, this happened in week ten of a sixteen week semester and we had no time to sort of, you know all of us very quickly abandoned the idea of doing a good job because it's (laughs) like under this there's no circumstance in which like I, you know, I can't like my very discussion-based 17-person yeah. class can't just magically transform into a good online class. It's a completely different yeah. mode of it's learning. it's a completely
0: different class. It's a completely different... Like, you have to grade very differently. Yeah. It's it, it's hard to... It's not a one-to-one transition at all. It's not, and none of them signed up for an
1: online class. Right. So, like, now, not, not only am I having to adapt, they're also having to adapt to, like, this new mode of learning that's really hard for some of them. Right. So... Um, For my context, I, like I said, I teach, I'm the lead instructor of the classes I teach. I teach general education, lower division undergraduate writing courses, which basically means they're open to all majors. They're lower, lower division doesn't mean that it's only freshmen and sophomores, but like they aren't. Um, They don't count – there's, like, the way UF does it, there's, like, certain credits that count for, like, lower division, certain credits that count for upper – they're basically elective courses. Um, Sometimes they're mandatory, like, the professional communication for engineers class that I'm teaching this semester. If you're an engineering major, you have to take it. But a lot of the more – like, the ones I do in departments, like, the film class I'm teaching aren't, like, required. You take it because you want to take it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to be, like, super clear also that I think that the classes I, – I, like, give that context to let, like to, uh, kind of underline what the class actually is. But, like, I, I think what I do is valuable and important, and especially because I work very hard to, like, use those spaces to try to expose um, students to things they might not encounter in other classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the context of a global pandemic, <laughs> I have a hard time calling professional communication for engineers – important you know what i mean and i think especially like part of the reason that i reacted so strongly to this like just keep teaching minimal disruptions thing is because it's sort of like this mindset that implies that like uh, learning how to email good is a critical skill that matters in the context of like your family dying you know what i mean like it's just like a level that's not currently present yeah i think it's important to learn how to email good don't get me wrong but it can wait yeah (laughs) you know what i mean like so it's like a it's just that was like for me quickly like a very like critical thing of like okay i have this class i have certain requirements i have to do for this class but what can i minimize to kind of emphasize the fact that like both on the student side and on the instructor side you know we are people who are caretakers there are folks that are like taking care of sick family members or disabled family members there are people that are of course disabled or sick themselves Mm -hmm. um there's people who are parenting right now um there's a lot of people who had to move back in with families that aren't supportive um in various capacities right you know i had a lot of my kids tell me that like their family just didn't understand that they had to be working And would like – like like, keeps trying to like make them do chores or like engage in family time and stuff and they keep trying to be like, no, like I'm in class and it's just not like clicking. You know, people are in precarious housing situations. So like I said, the dorms stayed open, but they're closing for the summer and we have international students that can't go home. We have kids that can't travel. um, So there are a lot of students that are now facing homelessness.
0: So would normally those dorm – would they stay open over the summer? Stay open. Okay.
1: Yeah, so I I personally, to my knowledge, none of my students are in that position, but, like, I have colleagues whose students are now facing, like, precarious housing or homelessness um, because of the situation and, you know, the schools can't, like, isn't, like, doing anything about it um, so far. And, you know, or food insecurity is another big thing because all of the the campus dining halls closed. Right. and uh, our dorms, some of them have, like, kitchens and stuff, but they don't really – you know, they don't have, like, fridges in their rooms or things like that, so they're having to, like, rely on takeout, and, like, a lot of kids can't afford that. Mm-hmm. Um, So we have a pan- – like, have a food pantry on campus, but, again – and, like, they're trying to do stuff, but, like, again, it's, like – even even the kids that don't have any of these issues right like this is a very traumatizing thing that's happening right so you know everyone's very anxious i have a lot of students that are struggling with executive dysfunction um i have a lot of students that like have talked to me about like It's really hard to, like – and I think this is true for everyone, right? It's so hard to, like, keep yourself on track to, like, remember to do the work, to care about doing the work, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it's like I'm in the same position as a student also, so, like, I obviously understand where they're coming from. Um, And so, like, what I'm going to talk about now is sort of, like, my response. And um, I'm going to sort of share these two things that I've worked on with my colleagues, F. Stewart-Taylor and Kara Weiland. One is a critical pedagogy and disability justice worksheet that we actually made back in February for a pedagogy conference on campus. And then the other one is an article we wrote for Activist History called um, Disability Justice and Mutual Aid Pedagogy or How I Learned to Keep Worrying and Teach Later On. Mm. So I'm coming to this my pedagogy is my teaching right when i say pedagogy i mean teaching like my the way i think about teaching um is informed kind of broadly by like abolition and transformative justice movements which we've talked about disability justice which i'll define in a minute and liberatory pedagogy um liberatory pedagogy is like um it comes sort of out of both marxist consciousness raising efforts uh and sort of black and brown women's um educational writings right Mm. um and teaching and um it's about using education to raise the consciousness of the oppressed rather than just sort of feeding them into the system Mm, right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so like frieri pedagogy of the oppressed is like the big touchstone for this right Um, Uh, by paolo
0: frieri i can never say his name i got two (laughs) copies of that book right over there right it's such a good
1: book um (laughs) big touchstone but, yeah, so I think part of the reason that, like, I'm thinking about the adapt adapting the classes the way I have been thinking about it is because I'm already coming from this place of, like, disability justice, of, like, liberatory pedagogy where the goal is not um, how do I hit the benchmarks, mm-hmm. right? The goal is, like, how do I help students um, achieve what they want to achieve while bringing them closer to, like, uh, a more realized understanding of, like, the systems that they're in. Mm-hmm. So, and my positioning here is also informed by my social signifiers. Um, so I'm going to restate those. Um, I am um, disabled, um, multiply disabled. I'm autistic and I have scoliokyphosis, um, which is like bad spine syndrome, <laughs> basically. <laughs> in a lot of chronic pain, mm-hmm. basically. Um, I'm transgender, right? Um, and I'm white and I'm queer. Um, so everything like I do also sort of comes from my positioning is being disabled and transgender and fat and also white and queer and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, I'm going to start with the critical pedagogy and disability justice worksheet, because that kind of gives the basis, I think for what the three of us are trying to t- do, like th- by talking about this, the
0: three of you, you and your two co-creators. Yeah. Me and my mm-hmm. two co-creators. Yeah.
1: So we made this worksheet. It's modeled after the uh, museums as sites for social actions toolkit, Um, which is a really great document and a great model for thinking about, like, how do you make a worksheet that is both informative and also helps people come to their own awareness about things. Mm. Um, And we'll link it in the show notes, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. But on the top of that, we have a quote from Jay Dolmage um, in the book Academic Ableism. And Dolmage is a um, disability studies scholar, right, Um, who has written a lot about, like, in particular, like, accommodations and why the accommodations model where – there's, like, a, a, a body at the school that has, like, a set list of things that you can – that are tied to certain diagnoses, and you go and you say, like, I have this diagnosis, and they say, great, we can give you more time for tests, and then you take that yep. letter. Oh,
0: yep, yep, yep. I'm going to be uh, – <laughs> public schools call those IEPs. I'll be talking yep. about that later on, too. Uh, the IEP stands for Individualized Education Programme. Um, Dolmage
1: writes, and this is the quote that goes at the top of our worksheet, um, able-bodied people all have things that they fall short with, skills or tasks that they may- will never master. But when disabled folks say, these are the things I need in order to do my very best, it is labeled as an accommodation. Accommodation is thought of as something That always needs to be created Something that has a cost This underlines the inherent inaccessibility Of nearly all of society Seemingly nothing is ever designed to be accessible In the first place Mm -hmm. Um, So disability justice Which is different from disability studies Is a movement that was named by the group um, Sins Invalid um, Which uh, A grassroots disability um, Movement um, Like disability activist movement Led by Black and Brown people of like primarily Black and Brown femmes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and comes from grassroots and is was made in response to the like inherent sort of white assimilist nature of disability active mainstream disability activism and disability studies. Mm. So the reason that we, like, do disability justice and non-disability studies is because disability justice is more about centering the lives of disabled people of color, of trans-disabled people, um, and, of course, the intersections therein, and, like, working towards those practices of abolition of transformative justice of like fundamentally changing society rather than reforming it right Mm -hmm. um so not like oh we need better accommodations but we shouldn't have an accommodation system in the first place things should already be built to be accessible right so i'm not going to go over this like whole worksheet obviously um if you are an educator or like work really in any sort of public we wrote it for, like, our colleagues, but it works, I think, also with people who do community organizing, right, who work at libraries, things like that. Cool. Um, but it's just – it comes with a little – it comes with a, couple, a definition of accessibility, of disability justice, of liberatory pedagogy. There's an inventory, which is, like, I believe – you, would like, check off that you believe these things. So they're I believe statements. Like, I believe um, students are experts of their own experiences, and my teaching can and should improve, involve dialogue and flexibility as it encounters students' needs. Um, And then there's some guiding questions about how to, like, move beyond accommodations, how to include your students' um, inputs. And then there's a couple of, like, activities uh, about, like, how to develop syllabi or grading practices. Um, And, again, those can kind of be modified depending on what you need. Um, And then also something that's very, like, important to me, which is rethinking punishment models of teaching, which is why, like, I talk Mm -hmm. about being an abolitionist teacher, right? is like and this says take some time to reflect on what unconscious biases you bring to the classroom what kinds of behavior do you consider good or bad and how might they be connected to social signifiers like race gender class and or disability Um, behaviors like not making eye contact fidgeting yawning volume modulation and code switching or use of informal language and the use of note-taking or assistive technologies including laptops none of which harm or impede other student learning can be misconstrued as disrespectful Mm -hmm. and like that's because you know being you know talking with like my other colleagues and stuff you know often people will say like oh this student is being disrespectful because they were talking loudly or oh like they weren't making eye contact is like a big one right and it's like Mm -hmm. those aren't actually harmful (laughs) you know like there's no reason you need to think of those as negative um and the reason we think of those as negative is is because of unconscious biases right um part part of this is just sort of like drawing attention to those sorts of things and then how can we adapt um and a big one for that with this switch to online has been students not responding or not checking in or turning things in late right? right i from the jump was like i need to just sort of let them do what they can do and, like, work from there. Right. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But um, the other thing, which is we we wrote this in – at the end of March, it was published on March 31st, so sort of – not – yeah, I guess kind of, like, early days, right, of things getting really dire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we wrote this because um, we wanted to sort of respond. In the early days, um, there was, like, this pandemic pedagogy Facebook group um, that started. And, um, you know, obviously educators everywhere were kind of like, what do we do? How do we handle this? And a lot of people were turning towards, like, punishment, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. give them a bunch of five-point assignments to make sure that they're actually reading stuff. Or, like, how do I make sure that they aren't taking advantage of the situation? That kind of thinking. Um, And we wanted to push back on that. Um, So I'm going to read a tiny bit from this. Um, We also sort of detail our strategies in it, but since I'm going to talk about my strategies, I'm not going to read that point. So, quoting, mutual aid comes from communist and anarchist theory and from everyday practices of survival. Um, The close association between mutual aid and disasters makes it a natural fit for teaching in a pandemic because extreme circumstances reveal existing gaps and exclusions in social safety networks. COVID-19 has resulted in new coverage, including the town hall project documenting COVID-19's specific mutual aid efforts, um, and that's... I believe Dean Spade is one of the people leading it. He's like a critical prison scholar, abolitionist, thinker, um, an activist, trans, also activist, um, who does a lot of work around mutual aid. Um, So he's kind of important, I think. Mm. And then, however, mutual aid has a long prior history. One example is the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, which includes organizers who have been doing work on the ground and mutual aid since uh, Hurricane Katrina. And um, I, I don't have this in here, but it it also traces its roots back to the Black Panther Party, um, mm-hmm. and their their slogan of survival pending revolution. Mm-hmm. So mutual aid is not, this is quoting again, mutual aid is not limited to disasters. Any organizing effort which relies on horizontal and relational organizing to meet needs within a marginalized community could constitute a mutual aid project. Disability justice pedagogy inherently aligns with mutual aid pedagogy. Disability justice is an activist practice coined by Patty Byrne and disability performance art collective Sins Invalid centering, quote, the lives, needs, and organizing strategies of disabled, queer, and trans, and or black and brown people marginalized from mainstream disability rights organizing's white-dominated single-issue focus. Um, disability justice pedagogy prioritizes flexibility and multiple modes of learning to account for individual student accessibility. It is intrinsically adaptable and does not rely on punitive frameworks that exclude or further marginalize students and workers with diverse needs and backgrounds.
0: Mm, mm
1: -hmm. And part of the reason for this too, is that disability justice is very aware of the fact that power dynamics are always asymmetrical. Um, There's, you know, there's no perfect accessibility that's going to work for everyone right? Mm -hmm. Zoom is a great example of this because for, you know, forever disability activists have been asking for remote options, right? Mm -hmm. For like the ability to go to class long distance, the ability to do talks long distance. Um, Zoom is like a really important tool for that or like other, Zoom has privacy issues. So in general, these sort of virtual um, tools are super important, but for some people they aren't. They all, they aren't universally accessible. For me, Zoom is not accessible because I have um, it, it issues processing audio, mm-hmm. which makes Zoom really hard for me. Um, like it takes. There's like a significant delay in how long it takes me to sort of process stuff. Mm-hmm. So in like a classroom setting where I'm expected to be like listening and contributing to a conversation, because that's you know, how seminars are structured in grad school is You all read this stuff and then you come in and talk about it. Um, That's like impossible for me. Right. But that's not, that doesn't mean that Zoom is inaccessible. It just means that these things are sort of, there's no perfect. You have to kind of, you have to develop a framework that accounts for multiple ways of engaging.
0: Yeah. And I feel like this is something that we, I've talked about too, which is part of why being an art teacher is awesome, is that you can develop different approaches. You can develop kinetic approaches Like Mm -hmm. verbal approaches, like there's so many different approaches and that's the idea is to always be changing and finding different ways to communicate the information that you want the students to have. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read one more paragraph, which is just our like kind of our conclusion. Mm hmm.
1: Um, the assumption that there can be a seamless transition is an impossible expectation of student and instructor labor. This directly speaks to structural inequalities exacerbated, exacerbated by coronavirus. The requirement to, quote, keep teaching without adjustment or time for rest is a pretty illustrative example of university teaching job compliance and job compliance valuing profit over life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't want student, we don't want to teach students to work themselves to death over a dollar in someone else's pocket. Mm-hmm. Treating Zoom as a one-size-fits-all band-aid for this crisis ignores the lived realities of students and teachers who may not be able to access Zoom or who may have disabilities that makes virtual conferencing extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, what we're responding to is this sort of, like, neoliberal co-option of the ideas of like flexibility, mm-hmm. right? To be like, oh, we can all just zoom in, we can work from anywhere. This is great. This is freedom. Mm-hmm. When really what you're doing is you're asking people to alienate themselves and put themselves in harm's way so that the university can make money to keep functioning. Mm-hmm. Be- like the reason that they didn't cancel the rest of the semester is because they didn't want to have to refund students' tuition. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> plain and simple. Right. So that's sort of where we're coming from here. And why – like, what I've done is – so, like, for the engineering class, this was a class that's already often taught online, and because of the timing, they were already kind of in their last project anyway. So I helped them kind of get into groups and, you know, went over as much as I could asynchronously. I'm relying a lot on, like, asynchronous, so, like, pre-recorded lectures and things like that. But I've just let them be. And this is true for both of the classes. Like, I gave them as much material as I can. I made myself as available as I can through, like, multiple avenues. Um, But, like, ultimately, like, I'm not forcing them – I wasn't forcing them to participate in discussions. I wasn't grading them on, like – I wasn't coming up with, like, fake attendance things. Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to enforce the, like – we originally met Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I wasn't trying to enforce that schedule. I just kind of let them do it, you know, and, like – Whatever they need, they need, and I like made that clear. But like, I didn't enforce anything. Mm-hmm. This was easier for engineering again because it was already sort of streamlined. Um, for film, much harder <laughs> because that's the class I designed
0: for film.
1: Yeah, so I teach uh intro to film.
0: Okay, uh, film making or
1: watching? Watching. Okay, it's like introduction to like film analysis as opposed to like writing film reviews. So like, a big goal of the class is just like. To help them, you know, learn the vocab and also, like, to write things that aren't just, I like this movie, cool. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, yeah, which is, like, a super cool skill for them to have. So that one, I got to sort of talk to them beforehand and they asked for asynchronous. Um, so I did uh, pre-recorded lectures for all the, like, remaining material. Um, I cut most of the readings that they had. Um, I did... Like on Fridays, we would have a Zoom check in that was like n- no one got in trouble if they couldn't come. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, you know, they were there more frequently. And then by the end, they sort of stopped coming. So I just sort of stopped doing it because, you know, I get like they were also at that point working on their finals for mm-hmm. other classes. This was really hard for me, honestly. Like, I and, you know, again, I'm gl- like I'm grateful that I kind of already am doing this work with the disability justice and mutual aid because, like, My ego (laughs) is such that, like, I really, like, I work really hard to build horizontal learning communities, like, very discussion-based, very, like, I want them to learn from each other as much as they learn from me. I want them to feel, like, empowered to, like, lead discussion, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That doesn't work over Zoom, it turns out. Like, everyone's afraid to talk because they don't want to accidentally cut someone off. People are cutting in and out. My Wi-Fi is really bad. And I, you know, like, I had the impulse at first to be like, okay, okay, we'll do, like, discussion boards or, like, I made a Slack and I'll get them to talk to each other on Slack. But it's like... I had to check myself and be like, actually, that doesn't work in this context. Yeah, There are certainly other contexts where it would work. Like, uh, It depends on your class, right? It depends on how many people in your class. It depends on um, the kind of work that they like to do. This class, my film class already was more resistant than other classes I have taught to the discussion model. <laughs> like most of the time they kind of just wanted me to explain stuff to them. Yeah.
0: I mean <laughs> every every class has a different personality that comes Exactly. Out. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, I had to sort of check my own ego and be like, I need to do what's best for them. Yeah. And like that was always my goal, right? But like it's very anxiety inducing to suddenly lose contact with huge swords of them. Right. Yeah. Like, um and to be like, I have to just trust that they are taking care of themselves and if they need anything they know that they can talk to me yeah so you know like i did one-on-one check-ins i only got like 11 of them out of the 17 to check in with me that's that's fine. pretty
0: good that was good honestly yeah
1: i know i was like hey i'll take it yeah like honestly so that was the but that was the thing right it was like I, it, it, the reason I sort of talk about it like this is because I, I understand where the impulse to do the, like, five-point check-in assignments yeah. comes from.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, it's all, we all have to check ourselves and slow down. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, because it is. It's very anxiety-inducing
1: to yeah. let go like that and trust them, especially because we're trained, like, by the institution to not trust them. Like, so much is about, like, here's how we make sure that the kids aren't taking advantage of us or, like... All the time I hear, like, it's unethical to let them turn stuff in late because it adds to your plate. And it's like, that's actually not true, I
0: don't think. (laughs) Like, actually, I don't think it's – I feel like I can get away with a lot. I mean, also, I'm a high school teacher, but I can get away with a lot more because it's like, I just want you to have a good art project. So do what you need to do to
1: make that happen. Yeah, like there's stuff (laughs) I couldn't do because like if I could have, I would have cut down all of their assignments, but it's a 6,000 word class and I can't pass them if they don't write 6,000 words. So there's stuff like that where I was like, I can't like I will get in trouble because someone will go back in and be like this person wrote 3000 words and you passed them. Yeah, like, that's that's tough. Yeah, so there's like always like compromises that are happening there. But I you know, I was also like it worked out because also like I was struggling cuz I still had to go to my classes over Zoom and like my professors like cut down on a lot of the requirements, but it still was like any work was so insurmountable. <laughs> for it, yeah.
0: Me. Mm-hmm. It was hard. It's hard. Like
1: I just came out of finals and I wrote, I think, maybe the worst papers I've ever written in my life. <laughs> but yeah. I had to <laughs> just get it done. So yeah. yeah. So I just wanted to share. Um I'm gonna and in the conclusion I have a couple other things, but I just wanted to sort of share like what I've done, how I've sort of abandoned my dreams <laughs> of these beautiful horizontal classes to focus on the practical reality of like these kids need to just focus on themselves. Yeah. Right. They don't need to be stressing out about this class that and I think like the thing about that is that like it's not saying like oh they're not getting anything from it because I think they're still getting stuff from it but what they're getting from it is the material not the like community uh yeah or the or the like the like assignments like you know maybe they won't like maybe this is not going to be I haven't like turned them into the best writers they could be given the circumstances that's fine they still got to read stuff that I think is really important and they still got to have like really good conversations that I think they're going to like carry with them even yeah. if, like, the class itself was sort of a cluster at the end.
0: Yeah. I think there's there's an image of... There's always an image, not not just in teaching, but in anything. But in this context, we're talking about teaching. Where mm-hmm. you want your class to be life-changing. You want, mm-hmm. like, this discussion about art to really get to the heart and soul of your students. And there's, this like, this image that... Because you... Obviously, all of us who are teachers are very passionate about what we're teaching. Yeah. And it is very difficult to be like, and then you enter that classroom and you're like, now the number one, I had all those fantasies while I was building my classes, while I was doing all my lesson plans. I have all these huge fantasies for how it's going to go. And then you go and you meet those students and you're like, okay, now it's, we're being student centered. Whatever yep. you need, we are going to accomplish that. And it's just like you're like, oh, I my goals for this class. Well, it's nice to have those. Those. That's not. That's not the point of a classroom, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. It's not about like you it,
1: in your fantasy of like being, uh, like the god, like um, Robin. W- what is what is it in Dead yeah, Poets Society? Robin Williams. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you're you're not gonna be Robin Williams. No, you never will. be. <laughs> No. Just like, No. And that's not to say, like, I know I've had, like, students who have had life change, not to be arrogant, but I know I've had students that have had life changing experiences because we've talked about it. But, like, that's not going to be every kid and you can't manufacture that. You
0: have to, like, kind of let them come to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of what I really like about teaching, though, is it's a mm-hmm. constant practice of humility and checking yourself, yes. which is a really yeah. good place to be as a human being, I feel like. Yeah. Okay, I've talked yeah. way too long. So- oh, no, you've talked fine. Great. Thank you so much, Remus. That's awesome. I think, okay, like like what we were talking about, how we have to renegotiate in any class, mm-hmm. even if it were how it was originally supposed to be set up, right, by right, our cl- yeah. schools and institutions. In any class, you have to check your expectations, Right. But I feel like this current um, pandemic situation truly is a constant exercise of checking yourself and making sure that you, it's just what you're asking of students. It's like never required, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? You always, you constantly have to be like, this is what, it's almost the ideal, right? Of having student-centered approaches. Like what the students are doing is what you want them to be achieving, right? Like they are the yeah. ones driving their education. It's actually kind of interesting.
1: It is. It's it's been very like I don't know, that's I think sort of where we were coming from also with this article is like what if instead of I mean, you know, without underplaying how traumatic everything is, like what if we saw this as an opportunity to really put into practice like the things that we say we want. Yeah? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like I, and I'm going to talk about this in the conclusion, right? This That, like, so much has been revealed to be arbitrary.
0: Yes. And we- not even just an education. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs>
1: yeah, like, so yeah. much. It's like, oh, actually, we could have been doing this all along, and right. you've just chosen not to. And right. so, like, okay, how do we then, like, seize on that momentum? Yeah. And kind of transform things. Yeah.
0: And, my, and, and in my, I mean, this is, tomorrow is May Day, and there's such a huge labor Mm -hmm. um strike happening i mean just watching the way amazon is crumbling is and like how no one needs one day shipping two day shipping we don't need that (laughs) we don't need it it turns out it's fine yeah it's (laughs) fine to wait a week it's absolutely fine like i just really hope that we as a culture embrace seeing the humanity in the Mm -hmm. because like uh, you shouldn't beat yourself up If you have Amazon Prime, I have Amazon Prime, you shouldn't Mm -hmm. beat yourself up over not being conscious of the workers behind your easy little online order because Amazon and all these companies purposely work (laughs) so hard to make... Their workers invisible, yeah, right, exactly. And so it's all just coming. It's all just coming out so much right now. Like who is mm-hmm. truly essential? Yeah, food workers are essential. They deserve a living wage. Like it's like we all need toilet paper. We need the person who manufacture who. Get, yep. who cut down the trees, we needed the people who work in the factory to convert it into toilet paper. We needed the people who package it and we needed the people who ship it and then we need the people who are working in the store to stock those shelves. Like there's so many stages <laughs> that are disrespected. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah it's, no. <laughs> yeah, it's really it is um it's an incredible time. Yeah. But also, you know, it's also, it's really hard to have these kinds of discussions about this, these kind of societal changes at the same time of how many people mm-hmm. are getting sick yeah. and dying. So it's, it's, it it's, it's the paradox to have to talk about this. So uh, now it's time for my segment where I am also going to be talking about education. So I just wanted to also start with an update on what I've been doing. Uh, during mm-hmm. distance learning times, so my school's response was fairly different from uh, Remus's. Mm-hmm. But Remus also works for a public institution, and I work for a private high school. Yeah. So my school is on trimesters, and so the the restrictions on large ga- large gatherings and the lockdowns started while we were on spring break. So our school kind of oddly was in a good position. For When this sort of started, right? So we already had a two week break to plan. And they actually the school gave us more time after the break. And then we were also starting a new trimester. So we were able to like completely rewrite curriculum if we have to and rewrite our classes to match distance learning needs. It also made moving grading to pass-fail a lot easier because you didn't need to negotiate letter grades with later on Mm. moving to pass-fail grade, right? Yeah. So it made a lot of the logistical things about schooling a lot easier for our institution, almost just by chance. But also uh, my school administration came out with a very comprehensive distance learning plan and gave us teachers a lot of time to prepare. They took an extra week off for us. Um, Also, part of that is not only they're also highly conscious of not only were they understanding that we had to uh, adapt a distance learning plan, But also Mm -hmm. we had a lot of life adaptation to be doing that we all had to do, started to stock up on groceries and things like that. Right. Yeah. So the plan that they had written for us um, had a lot of focus on scaling back. That was a huge focus of it. Classes would have less weekly meeting times and homework time was drastically cut. Our schedule completely changed. Uh, There were more breaks built into the day, like there's about an hour break between each class and there's only three classes a day, where I think normally it's five. Our schedule completely changed. Mm Mm-hmm. We are told that a response that can happen from educators, so like in general, like Remus had talked about, is that when you can't see your students, you suddenly ask for way more from them, even though you don't want it to seem that way, right? You start to suddenly ask for more in a time when we should be asking less. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost like a psychological response to wanting to have that contact and have confirmations that students are on task. Yeah, I've been really vigilant with myself to only send really general gentle reminders to students only after a deadline has passed, things like that. Because it's it, it, you have a habit of, especially if students are doing something on Google Doc, you can access that Google Doc at any time and correct them. <laughs> but <laughs> right, yeah. it's kind of rude to do when it, the deadline hasn't even come. And then once the deadline has come, then you can go in and see what they have done. right? But I know that is a lot of teachers' instincts. To want to help and want to be with their students obviously that's why we're teachers so all of this was trying to remove that pressure off of all of us and be gentle with each other Mm -hmm. my school has always been really understanding of humanity and private lives and a lot of respect for that and i think a lot of that also just comes from the way a school um has a lot to do with a family right you get to know the families you get to know the students their children right You start to become part of the family. And so family and school, at least in our environment, is is very respected and understood. And so the administration had built this distance learning pen with the idea of mental health at the forefront. But also, and I'll continue while on talking about this because I am going to be talking about what Providence Public Schools' response was. Mm -hmm. Also, it is important to continue teaching and continue school for students, uh, not only the social aspect of allowing students to be able to keep in touch with each other, um, it's really important to adolescents. Um, adolescents, developmental job essentially is to detach that's right that's why the cl- kind of cliche of like the teenager being like really mad at their mom kind of thing <laughs> it's because their job is to detach and find a life on their own move out right that's right. what adolescents are supposed to be doing and so it's just a really hard time to not have kids be able to see each other Um, So that's why we sort of moved to Zoom. So students would be able to see each other, see us as teachers, but also each other. Yeah, We've been trying to have extracurricular activities. Um, Athletic teams still kind of get together and have virtual workout sessions. And also for education, you don't want, you want to continue um learning right so there's the summer slide that we've talked about Mm, yeah and where over the summer for three months if a child doesn't have any educational experience they actually lose i want to say two months worth of education that they did get and so the real fear is that if students don't children don't have any school for six months if school didn't continue in some some capacity, they would lose almost the entire grade that they had already gone to school for in the previous year. It's it's hard to say the word year because it's. <laughs> I almost always mean school year, but f- for most people, year the beginning of the year is January. For me, it's definitely September, so <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to phrase. I mean- <laughs> yeah, it's hard to phrase. But like, if students are losing multiple, they'll. It's like. They'll, if they don't, if they stopped going to school all through the summer, it would be six months, right? And then they mm-hmm. would lose almost the entire six months before that. So they would almost lose an essentially an entire year of education if school didn't co- continue on in some capacity. Am right. I making sense? No, yeah, you are. Yeah. 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 So, like, even if it's just reading at home, you need to that mental stimulation because developmentally, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on in kids, you know? Right. You it's you can't just hit pause on developing. You're still developing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's why finding a continuation of school was really important um, to K through 12 education. So I, I just wanted to point out that that has a little bit of differentiation with what Remus was saying. Um, right. Because, like, I mean, at this point, I have friends who have two year olds and, like, babies, infants who are now walking. And, you know, they're like, they're, the things that they are really developing is during this time, right? Like, right. The, yeah. This time can last a long time in a child. And, like, Remus mm-hmm. Head actually mentioned really briefly, I am like going so off my notes right now. <laughs> but it is key it is key to point out i didn't do a lot of research on this but maybe that's something that we can continue uh to talk about on drawing dialogue is actually one Mm -hmm. of the first things that started to be discussed was trauma informed pedagogy because Mm. at this point all children are being traumatized every human is being traumatized right Yeah, And, uh, you know, to different capacities, depending on uh, where you're living. But this is a very traumatic event. It's a crisis. And Mm -hmm. so knowing how to approach teaching as a teacher and approach students who are traumatized um, Mm -hmm. and sensitive to that is one of the early conversations that I started seeing when we're talking about distance learning. Yeah. So... Oh, that's something to chalk up for next time—is maybe more uh, discussion about trauma-informed education. Yeah, I mean that ties into what I was talking about with disability justice, right? Like, yeah being able to
1: respond to trauma um, and taking care of traumatized people especially like again I think what dis- the reason disability justice is so critically important is because it's also a recognition that you yourself are in a certain capacity right are dealing with certain yes. things have a certain like mind body reality yeah. so like it's not just like oh you're a blank slate that is like you're also being traumatized <laughs> like we're also yes. being traumatized so we have to also take into account like where we're at and what we need and then how do we negotiate that um, right. to do what we can for our students
0: yeah and i tweeted about this a long time ago and i also touched on it in the last episode of drawing and dialogue but when this mm-hmm. first hit it was extremely overwhelming for me yeah and it was really difficult to um because honestly you learn especially when you're working with younger ages who are going through a lot um you sort of learn to really compartmentalize i really compartmentalized myself i put myself in a little box before i enter that classroom because your baggage really shouldn't come into play when you're working with minors, honestly. Right. But you know, at this time it was it's um it was really difficult to negotiate that and I realized it wasn't a reality. <laughs> right. Right. It wasn't a reality to pretend like I'm fine and that I'm a hundred percent here for the kids. Right. Right.
1: And, and I mean, like, the nice thing about college is that you can be, I mean, there's like a pressure to still be very detached from them in that way, like, as a professional. Yeah. But they are also adults. And I was like, I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> like, I'm also yeah. a student. I'm also dealing with all this. So, like, yeah.
0: And that's, and that is a difference where, because um, you hear about it, you don't want minors to feel like they need to take care of an adult it's right exactly yeah that's uh, that's also traumatizing in itself so Mm -hmm. but then i actually started to feel a lot better and a lot of that was because of this transition listen listen to me segue right now and a lot of that (laughs) difficulty was that transition of a visual art class right that's (laughs) it was look at me transition (laughs) very smooth Thank you. But it is it was very hard for me to wrap my head around something where I am. I highly value kinetic kids being able to use their hands, learning right. different materials, being in the same room and and like having that energy. Right, that you just can't get in Zoom. And so that was part of what was so mentally difficult for me was to rewrite, throw out all my lesson plans. There's not a single thing that I'm doing that's the same. (laughs) (laughs) Because these aren't art school kids. These kids don't have art supplies at home. Like maybe one person has paint at home, right? They got pencils and paper. They maybe have some markers. They maybe have some colored pencils. And, and that's it. You're teaching
1: it. sculpture, aren't you?
0: I'm teaching sculpture. I'm <laughs> teaching puppetry. And I'm teaching illustration, which is working out the most, the best, to right. be honest. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> um, so my classes are currently, as they are now in distance learning, um, they're built of synchronous and asynchronous blocks. Um, so, synchronous, as in we meet on Zoom and we have a in-person mm-hmm. discussion or something, and asynchronous in which during our class block, I will put something onto Google Classroom for them to, like, uh, steps to follow for Google Classroom. Mm-hmm. All my communication, I'm trying to originate it in Google Classroom, so there's just a one-stop shop for them, because also another really difficult thing with distance learning is communication, right? So I'm just trying to get them used to Everything. if they don't know what's going on in class just head to the Google Classroom and there's going to be something there for you Mm -hmm. the reason I use Google Classroom is I like that Google Classroom it's the one I've been using it's the online learning platform that I've been using for the past couple of years um, because Mm. I like how they have image and video integration Mm. for art education not other platforms like maybe do you have Blackboard? we use Canvas. Canvas I think that image and video integration is a lot trickier it's less it's almost Google Classroom is almost looks like Tumblr or something.
1: <laughs> oh, interesting. Canvas is the the way my understanding of the way that Canvas is structured is that it's very similar to like a wiki. Um yeah. and th- the way that you build out page- like More you can definitely text. Yeah, and you can like there's tools to like incorporate video and stuff but it is like a little less seamless.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Google Classroom's trying to make A classroom into social um, social media looking kind of thing and i know that you know maybe it's not crazy for me to be like good job google (laughs) that's not necessarily (laughs) what we're trying to do here but in terms of k through 12 education having a visual vocabulary that is more familiar to kids to be able to communicate information to them is actually really important I've found because just no one reads a block of text. No one does, right? So try- trying to learn, I'm talking to a PhD student. Maybe you read blocks of text, but like if, if you get <laughs> no, an email, but it's not accessible. Blocks it's of not text accessible. accessible. If you yeah. get an email from your teacher and it's just a huge paragraph, they're not going to read it, right? They're I'm
1: gonna- also so guilty. Like it's so hard for me to write short emails that I had to start one editing myself but also numbering things yes I number <laughs> Being, things yeah like one do this two yes. do this three yes. here's a block of text because yes. I can't stop
0: myself it's a skill <laughs> and that's the funny thing is that um it's really hard <laughs> if you are currently a through k-12 college student trying to getting teacher training right now it is mm-hmm. a skill to take the heady concepts that college gives you and uh-huh. then communicate it to a child yeah <laughs> <laughs> I know it makes it feel like K through 12 educators are like. Sometimes I feel like a clown, right? Like, because you're like a goofy clown trying to <laughs> well, they simplify have to everything. It so that they but can you need to it. say stuff in a way that actually gets through to children. <laughs> like, yeah, so, no, totally.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's it true is even for like the undergraduate courses sometimes because like the freshmen don't oh, yeah. like I have to stop and you know like I'll say something and they'll be like what and I'm like oh okay I have to like stop and break this down yeah
0: freshmen <laughs> are still adolescents you know yeah yeah and then I use zoom uh, for the synchronous blocks a lot of that just because the school said we are using zoom <laughs> Yeah, Uh, frankly, we have a Google based system. I would have preferred Mm. to just use Google Hangouts because it would have popped up right there instead of having to figure out how to integrate Google, our Zoom conferencing into the Google uh, calendars that we have. Okay, here's the thing. I know I'm just like feel like I'm talking in circles, but here's the thing with distance learning is it needs to be streamlined because it is yes. very easy and very quickly becomes highly confusing. Yes. So, Oh, definitely. It, it, it's very easy for it to just... There's a thousand ways to communicate with someone digitally, right? Mm-hmm. You can send them a little text. You can do a comment on their Google doc you can send them an email you can do all the you can comment on the Google classroom <laughs> it's like there's so many different ways of reaching people I was like okay I'm gonna do Google classroom zoom and I'll email you I'm not gonna do anything else <laughs> <laughs> because that's me and my students those those poor students have to negotiate all the other ways their teachers are trying to communicate with them right yeah so for me I was like this is it this is it. I'm gonna try to simplify it for you. Um, because Zoom is built into Canvas for us, and
1: it's still the most confusing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: it's so annoying. Yeah, yeah. Zoom has. They are. They were just a conferencing tool. They were not built for this. They were not yes. built to be able to control the people. They were like this platform. Man, they are having a renaissance they were not prepared for. (laughs) No. Um, So for Zoom, I value it as a way to keep uh, social connections with students, Um, not only for me, but for with each other. But I try not to use it to deliver actual information um, that isn't also available on my Google Classroom. Because students may have weak connections, they can drop the call, they could not understand you because there might be a delay Mm -hmm. or you might have like paused for them. Um, And especially for adolescents, it's it's super embarrassing that their Wi-Fi dropped. It's very class-based, right? If they have Mm -hmm. a weak connection, it's super embarrassing. And they're almost never going to tell you if they need something to be repeated. They're not right. gonna say it because it's embarrassing in front of their peers. So I make it a huge point. We have Zooms, like my Zooms are just for like working together. Like we just sit for an hour and we just draw. And maybe I I really like to ask them what is sustaining them. And then, then we talk about their dogs and we just like talk like have some social Aww. connection. Yeah. Gotta approach this humanely. <laughs> it's a tough time. Um but I don't I never use Zoom for like Real true instruction. I uh, record, I use QuickTime and I record slideshows. If I'm giving a slideshow, I would just record my voice and I let them watch it at their own time because then they can always go back, things like that. I also invested in a GoPro camera so I would be able to film material demonstrations on my desk. Mm-hmm at a higher quality because like my laptop camera wasn't able to pick up like drawing and things like that. Material demonstrations are something I really value for my students um, because they're able to watch me manipulate the art materials Um, It's tactile, and it doesn't rely on verbal language. It's super valuable to deliver information in different ways. And so I had been using my laptop camera, um, which you can also do. I would recommend pre-filming these videos. I wouldn't recommend trying to do it through Zoom. If you are an art teacher who's listening, I would recommend filming and then allowing students to access film. And then I also had a library workshop that I had booked as an author (laughs) that I had booked a long time ago, because I teach comics classes, because it's my favorite thing to do on the planet. And so I actually did I did a library workshop through Zoom, and I used the whiteboard feature in Zoom a lot, because you can draw right on your whiteboard, and I used my tablet. Um, I used oh. that instead of worksheets that I normally print off for the kids. And actually, there's a recording of that, so I'm actually going to make sure that I link that in the show notes, and you can watch yeah, me do a recording I always recommend Zoom is really um, impersonal. Um, If you are using it right now, Mm -hmm. try to have everyone talk at the very beginning. Ask a really silly question or something and just get everyone to talk to sort of make that human connection a little bit. Um, That's my recommendation for all classes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But especially Zoom is so awkward. I've gotten a lot better at it. I don't know if you have, but I've gotten a lot (laughs) better I've gotten a lot better at not feeling awkward and uncomfortable. Uh,
1: it's it just doesn't work like I like I said. I have that processing issue, right. so like it, I just feel like frustrated the whole time. Yeah, uh, that makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, for me, it's like uh, being on camera was yes. really uncomfortable for me at the beginning, but now I've gotten a lot more comfortable because we are so used to things being on camera. We're so, we're so used to only conventionally very beautiful people being on camera. <laughs> Right. If, if that makes sense and so you're like oh I need to make sure I'm really well lit and I need to like, put on makeup and, like, I don't know does that make sense like I'm like no I get you I get you yeah I'm a visual artist man like I don't want to be on camera no one should be seeing me <laughs> But I've gotten better at that because we're all sort of in the same boat. That's sort of the interesting thing. We're all in the same boat. Yeah. But at the the same time being in different situations, which is important to note. That's my experience. So I wanted to give a few uh, educational and social emotional resources. Yeah. Things that would be useful to educators. And the goal to any online resource should be to recreate that vital relationship teachers have with students. I believe education is all about connections between people and digital how-to instruction doesn't really build that connection and can become one-sided right I want students to feel like equal partners in the classroom and take a and be an equal partner in their education that should be the goal the goal shouldn't be delivering information right right so that's sometimes what a classroom is but I feel like in this distance learning model we should be relationship focused rather than content focused so there's a lot of amazing resources on teaching tolerances website which is tolerance.org there's a a great article on supporting students with learning disabilities during these school closures um, there's also a great article on supporting LGBTQ students during uh, social distancing mm. a lot of them have to do with not just doing classes through Zoom but making sure you have extracurricular activities mm-hmm. um, so students are able to reach out to each other and support each other if they are maybe in a home that's unsupportive Um, And also having office hours and things like that, Um, just making sure that kids do not feel alone in this current state. Right. Yeah. It's a huge loss um, Mm -hmm. for students to be losing that school time. And we we think of school as just a class, but there's hallway time, there's cafeteria time. Students get to spend a lot of time with each other. And school is a lot more than just class c- and content. Yeah. This um, is
1: also a big deal for college kids because for a lot of them, like, it's their first time being away from their families. Mm-hmm. And so they're, like, really experimenting with themselves in a way that they can't do at home. And now they have to, like, go home and pretend they're not doing that, basically. Yes. And yep. that's, like, really hard for them.
0: Yeah. Um, I also... This is, like, uh weirdly embarrassing, but I'm embracing it, is that I really have done so many webinars <laughs> like like so many I feel like I in the past it was like I just didn't want to have to sit at a desk for an hour and like right. go to a webinar at four o'clock or something but now I'm like always sitting at a desk and now I'm like I want to do three webinars a day. Like I love webinars. So I've been doing a bunch. There is a group called Speak Out I don't know if you've heard of Speak Out, uh. um, but they've been having really awesome speakers. I saw one by uh, Robin Henderson Espinoza, and it was about mm. uh, combating divisive politics by bridging with radical difference. <laughs> That's the name ah. of the webinar I did. They're $5 for Speak Out, because honestly, part of their project is also paying people. Yeah, But I got professional development money for it. So, And then also uh, RISD... Is doing the RISD alumni. So I got my master's degree from Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, Their alumni department has been putting on webinars. I attempted to do one early in the stay-at-home orders, but I found the approach to the subject at the top of the seminar to be super detestable, so I didn't watch the rest. This was during the time when I was at the beginning of the stay-at-home orders, I was very anxious um, and I was really kind of having a hard time. Right. So I was like, maybe this will help, right? It was like, like the title was also something innocuous, like being creative during a crisis or something, right? And I was like, I <laughs> want to be creative during a crisis. <laughs> because <laughs> you know creativity kind of <laughs> can can save you sometimes yeah um, definitely but the, the the at the very beginning this person first suggests that you should fire your employees as early as possible um, <laughs> referencing about both 9-11 and the 2008 great recession and how he regretted holding on to his employees for like an extra week or something and should have let go of them as quickly as possible because oh it could save money I know right um, and right now, the economy is, you know, we're, we're approaching great depression territory right now. So, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, and, and then he moved on to say that crises, uh, also removes quote unquote competition. So if you can stay in the game, you'll come out on top. Now, so this had three disturbing implications to me one, that artists and creatives see each other as competition. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, instead of wanting everyone in the world to be a creative human being, two, that it is a positive thing that creative people are either financially pushed out of the industry and that we like that, or worse yet, it has a disturbing implication that it may be positive for people to be dying and they're therefore not, no longer competitors in the creative fields. Aye. Oh, I really did not like it. Did not like it. No, that's so bad. That's Got so- really mad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's, that reminds me of um, the people, like, the, the, fac- the professors on Twitter who have been talking about their schools asking them to prepare, like, what should happen if they die while teaching kind of th- thing.
0: <sighs> <sighs> oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty awful. My school also hired a crisis counselor. And she is someone who worked with uh, faculty from the Columbine tragedy, and also schools that were located near um, the 9/11 site. One thing that really jumped out at me from this crisis counselor is how important it is for faculty to get together and talk during these crises. Often, her meetings were the first time that faculty we were in the same room together after a tragedy had happened. So it was—it's really important for a uh, faculty. To acknowledge the situation with each other and f- rebuild that community right. and that relationship after a crisis. And then she also pointed out about how adolescents mourn. Um, they grieve for things like missing their friends and they miss prom. And we have seniors who aren't going to be able to have graduation. And these right. things seem really trivial. And as adults, especially in these very anxious times, the most helpful thing we can do for our adolescents is just to listen. Contextualizing can lead to resentment. Sure, you're missing prom, but people are getting sick and they're dying. It isn't always helpful. Teens often just need acknowledgement of their feelings. And then this is what the crisis counselor had told us, and I Also want to have a side note that, however, part of me also thinks contextualizing at some key moments is good, too. I don't believe... teens are so self-absorbed that they can't understand that what is happening to them is also happening to everyone in different capacities. Right. And also as teachers, maybe it's good for us to be the ones contextualizing and getting that resentment rather than their families who they're stuck with at home right, right. now. Right, yeah. Um, and then another thought I would talk about comics a little bit right now on our <laughs> comics <laughs> podcast here. Um, I also... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that, that old thing. There's also great uh, webinars by uh, cartoonists right now. Yeah. Um, I saw one that Yao Xiao uh, did for the NYC Salon. I don't actually know what the NYC Salon is, but I think it's a cartoonist thing. <laughs> Uh, one thing that really jumped on me and I thought was really cool was she opened discussion about bilingual comics and multilingual mm-hmm. comics, um, which I thought was really interesting unique. And then, of course, I didn't take notes and I didn't screenshot her slides. So if you're interested in hearing more, I would suggest hiring Yao to do another talk. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> and then some other comics responses. I wanted to point out... That the Providence Public Library and the Rhode Island Historical Society are currently building a Rhode Island COVID-19 archive. Mm. And it's a site to document the experiences of Rhode Island residents during COVID-19. The goal is to create a virtual archive that documents the ways that individuals and their communities are affected by social isolation, quarantine and illness, and mutual aid. All contributors and kinds of contributions are welcome. Videos, audio recordings, text, photographs, artwork, zines, anything. It's my understanding that this has just started, um, but you can Mm. find it at the ricovidarchive.org. It sounds really cool. And I'm glad that um, there are places other than just the New York Times publishing and f- using comics as a way to respond to what's happening. That's really cool. It is really cool. I'm excited to see um to go through that archive. That's the end of my segment. Normally we would g- start going into the conclusion, um but I actually wanted to move the segment uh schools are the community to right after my segment because um I wanted to be able to talk about the Providence Public Schools' response. Uh, to distance Mm. learning. So here's the new segment schools are their community. In this segment, we are talking about the Providence Public School System, which has been experiencing a state takeover since November 1st, 2019, which was towards the beginning of the current school year. I have joined on as a community advisory board member who are community members who are giving a voice to while schools are making this transition, right? So I am a community advisory board member trying to give my thoughts and uh, contributions to the Providence public schools while they're being taken over by the state. Right. And the reason that we are talking about this is it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to document it in some capacity because Rhode Island is a very small state, but uh, historically state takeovers don't necessarily go very well for school systems. So I wanted to be able to document this historical moment as best I could. And it's only becoming more historical, based on that we are now facing a state takeover at the same time that we have to move to distance learning. Right. Um, yeah. I thought it would be interesting to present the province public school system as a case study for public schools and distance learning. Right. So we've le- heard about from public college, public university. From a private mm-hmm. high school, which is where I work as a day job. And now we're going to start talking about public schools. Um, so I watched a Facebook Live town hall with Superintendent Harrison Peters who he just started in February. So he, the new superintendent, because they kicked out the old one, right? They, <laughs> I actually don't know if I can just say that so flippantly. I'm actually not quite sure how the other superintendent, I actually think that person quit. Um, but this new superintendent, Harrison Peters, he started only in February. So he mm. only started right into the beginnings of the pandemic, right? right? And then this Facebook Live town hall also had the state education commissioner, Angelica Infant Green, which we've talked about. Uh, in this segment before, um, and -hmm. this took place on Wednesday, April 15th. So the schools were closed by Providence Governor Gina Raimondo announced on March 13th, which is also a Friday. So this saw this town. It had been exactly one month of distance learning. Mm. So for about the first 15 minutes, the commissioner's microphone wasn't working at all, which is funny, but sobering reality to what is likely the truth for a lot of students. That technology Mm -hmm. is a huge, huge hurdle for this at the same time the superintendent said they had also distributed 19,000 Chromebooks to students across Providence so there's 19,000 students with a new brand new laptop mm-hmm. right that they've never had before And they are also working with smartphone carriers to offer Wi-Fi hotspots that people, families can use on phones and also local wireless companies to turn on wireless connections throughout the city that apparently had already been built. Right? (laughs) Like there (laughs) are hotspots, Wi-Fi hotspots to offer a more public accessible Wi-Fi method, but the companies just hadn't turned them on. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's also, quote, unquote, other philanthropic opportunities to get Wi-Fi. I'm just going off of what I get from these town halls, right? Yeah. So as an aside, this really highlights the truth that Wi-Fi is a necessity and a utility and should be provided to every home like you can't work unless you have wi-fi you can't apply to jobs there's so much that you need to be able to access the internet right that's been true for decades <laughs> at the time of the town hall the province public schools was still working on end of year grading guidance so they hadn't decided how grading was going to happen till the end of the year um, and they're And was still struggling with students who have learning and developmental differences, who have IEPs, as we talked about, individualized education programs. And schools are obligated, I believe, legally to adapt to the learning needs of their students, right?
1: Yeah, that's part of the uh,
0: ADA. Right. So like every child has a legal right to an education Mm -hmm. and that legal right means that that education needs to be accessible to them quote-unquote accessible, as we just talked about with Remus. So on Tuesday, recently, on Tuesday, April 28th, I actually asked Remus to push this back a little bit so I could attend this. (laughs) I attended an online information session uh, with a variety of administrators from the Providence public school system. The distance learning program was uh, described by Chief Equity and Diversity Officer, Dr. Barbara Mullen, as quote-unquote triage learning. In phase one. So it was a stopgap specifically creating the distance learning plan itself to make sure there was an equitable access to online resources. Mm. So what they were saying is that now we are in phase two because it's been a month and a half where we're just building capacity and settling into the established way of working. So it took a month and a half to really get to actual distance learning at the level that they want it to be. Now, that being said, a thousand families still do not have access to Wi-Fi at home. So there is still right. a thousand families. This distance learning plan also relies on Wi-Fi access. Some teachers are sending out packets, like um, so, there is some information coming through, but not like homework and daily activities, things right. like that. Yeah. Right. So we are st- still a thousand families who don't have Wi-Fi access. They're sort of looking at, they were building capacity, they're trying to establish this way of working, and it's, Dr. Mullen said, um, it's led by schools, teachers, and students through direct relationships, right? Which is what I was talking about before, Mm -hmm. where it's all about finding relationships, but also it really is still putting a lot, a lot, a lot of pressure on teachers. right? So they have distance learning plans, and you can even look at them online, but they don't answer a lot of stuff. They don't answer what daily schedules are like, which uh, need to be created by individual teachers. Um, there's really non specific lesson plans, just sort of a collection of resources. The only uh, subject that clearly states that a teacher is present in science. Um they seem to say just do this subject every day without a schedule. And as we know K through 12 education, a schedule is really important. As right. we know as human beings in this very strange world, you need to have a daily schedule. Otherwise everything starts to blur together and fall apart, right? And as a side note, the art guidance was actually particularly heartbreaking to me. There were maybe like one or two YouTube videos linked, and that was sort of the main. There's nothing personal about personal creativity or expression or anything. Just like a YouTube on how to draw a caricature linked. It was very disappointing. Again, this is phase 1. So it's that that triage phase to make sure that children had some kind of educational guidance early in the crisis. Phase 2 is trying to give ownership to those plans to teachers and students and engaging families. So at this point, numbers are important. Before distance learning, only 25% of students were using online learning, right? So, mm. I actually found that very low. Right, right, only 25 students have some capacity of online learning access, meaning there is a literacy curve, a digital literacy curve. right. right. So yeah. the town hall was almost just IT guidance. <laughs> he was right. telling us about how if you're having a problem with your laptop, the superintendent of Prov- Providence Public Schools was saying, "Turn your laptop off and on again. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just was unbelievably frustrating, right? And so much like they need to build teacher capacity. Teachers need to be moving their stuff online. They need skills, so they've been having a lot of provi- of professional development workshops. With they had four hundred more professional development workshops with eight thousand participants for teaching just basic technology navigation. Which, Mm -hmm. I mean, professional development was one of the pushes for the state takeover, right? Right. Because teachers, you need constant professional development to make sure you are always learning and always adapting and always being new. We all should be having professional development no matter what our profession is, right? And so there was no access to this. And now suddenly there's 8,000 participants. (laughs) It's just very frustrating, that it took again of global pandemic for this to actually happen, and it seems to have happened pretty easily, <laughs> right? And that's, I mean, just like I'm going to a lot of webinars. I imagine they're one hour webinars, like the ones I'm doing too. But right, again, a thousand families still don't have access to Wi-Fi, meaning they still haven't had contact with their teachers. They're working on it. On. One thing that was nice is that they were doing, I mentioned this last um, episode, is that they were doing lunches at school. And they've actually moved to moving school lunches to SNAP benefits. So Oh, good. Yeah, so quote-unquote food stamps. So you no longer have to go to the school at a certain time, which was unsafe, right? Now you right. are getting more... Uh, SNAP benefits or EBT benefits um, to just put that lunch money to um, your groceries, right? Good. Yeah, so I felt like that was a positive direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate to cast judgment. I don't mean to be doing that. I'm sorry if it started to come off flippant. Um, I'm glad that the province public schools are doing what they can. Mm-hmm. There, it seems like a lot of hand-tying, as I've continually pointed out, by regulation, right? So there's like concerns yeah. with the state takeover relies on testing, right? right? It relies on these math and English tests. And now those tests, I want to say I believe they are canceled. Those tests are canceled. <laughs> So right. we aren't going to have data for how the state takeover is going for possibly years.
1: And I mean I honestly because like how how is anyone's learning going to improve in this like situation, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. So
0: Yeah. It's um I mean I'm here because I want to be documenting it and what I have right. is drawing a dialogue and so here we are documenting what the province public schools during a state takeover are doing during this pandemic um, that here are their plans. Um, go look at their plans. We want to always be watchdogging this situation. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thanks. So I guess now is our conclusion, right? Now is our conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, I have a couple, I want to go quickly. I, I just wanted to, I kind of already said this in when I was sort of talking about the goal being to, to try to like not let things, Like, this is a chance first transformation, right, if we're able to come together in that way. So I just wanted to talk about, like, the fact that we can't – we're not going to go back to normal. We can't go back to, quote, normal. Mm -hmm. But also we shouldn't want to, right? Because what was normal in our context in the U.S. is exploitative and deadly. Yeah. So I have – I wanted to highlight a couple of – um things, which is, one, this article from uh, Dan Coyce for Slate called America is a Sham. Um, This was published in March, and he just sort of is talking about how Gov- local government and state responses and l- federal responses right to the pandemic have really revealed how the things that we kind of assume are required right are told that it's just the way things have to be actually aren't <laughs> and it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. um, that way and I wanted to sort of read off like you know he, he mentions um, that you know evictions have been in certain places stopped halted right broadband data caps and things like that had been removed um things have been things like federal student loan interest has been suspended like all these like things that we just sort of take for granted aren't happening anymore and he writes in every single one of these cases it's not just that most of these practices are accepted as quote standard it's that they are a way to punish people to make lives more difficult or to make sure that money keeps flowing upward up until now activists and customers have been meant to believe that the powers that could be could never change these policies it would be too expensive or too unwieldy or simply would upset the way things are done but now faced suddenly with an in which we're all supposed to at least appear to be focused on the common good. The rule makers have decided it's okay to suspend them. Yeah, and he sort of makes the point that like this is a moment where people are seeing like oh it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, and it's harder to sort of once Pandora's
0: opened the box, it's harder to sort of close it again, right? Yeah. Um. The, Dan Coys is actually a comics guy. He usually writes. Oh yeah, comics reviews. I've met him at Small Press Expo. He was really nice about my book gorgeous awesome. yeah dan's actually a comics guy hey <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a great article so yeah. that's great. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> all right and so then the other thing i wanted to um the other two things is one rust belt abolition radio which is a um sort of a local radio program that does like abolition work or like highlights abolition work did an interview with ruth wilson gilmore amanda alexander and kim wilson um and all of them are of uh, like very prominent like anti-prison activists right abolitionist activists cool. um and so this interview is called survival pending abolition and it's um them sort of talking about you know, the work that's been happening around COVID and responses to it. But one of the things that they all sort of keep coming to is like, again, the things that are suddenly happening are things that activists and community organizers have been campaigning for, for years Mm -hmm. um, and kept being told, no, no, no. Um, And so this part from Ruth Wilson Gilmore, I wanted to sort of mention um, talking, they're talking about mutual aid and how like mutual aid has sort of been brought to a lot of people's attention in a way that it hasn't necessarily been before. Um, But as a result, some folks, um, particularly like, you know, to be honest, white folks who aren't super familiar with the legacies of community organizing – um, are sort of treating it as something that's new, mm-hmm. right? And so she she was saying, whereas we all know, all of us doing the show together, know that this kind of work not only has a long history in the long 25 years of the contemporary abolitionist present, but that work itself built on long work that was in many ways inspired by the kinds of activities that are best summarized in the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense motto, Survival Pending Revolution. And so, like... She sort of just talks about things, the, the fact that like these contemporary stopgaps aren't sustainable unless we kind of keep pushing. Uh-huh. And she says, I've been thinking a, little, a bit too about the fact that in the last 45 years ago, since the U.S. made a dramatic turn to prisons and policing as an all-purpose solution to social problems, what's happened at the same time is that the number of hospital beds in the U.S. has fallen by about 50%, uh-huh. which is to say there are about half the number of hospital beds in the United States today as there were about in 1975, and this is important as well. If the U.S. can, as is happening in fits and starts around the country, construct either out of a convention center or out of a shuttered hospital beds adequate to the task of helping people who are suffering from COVID and from other things, then clearly we also have before us an indication of what we should be doing for employment, for workers, for all kinds of people to rebuild our healthcare system and make it possible for everyone to have the kind of well-being and treatment so that underlying conditions that are contributing to premature death among black people in Detroit and among Navajo on the Navajo reservation will not persist. Mm. So these are all connected, I think. Mm-hmm. It's a really lovely like interview um and they do have the transcript also posted which is very helpful cool. for people like me. So I just wanted to shout that out and then the last thing I wanted to shout out is Critical Resistance which is a long-term abolitionist org right. Um published an abolitionist platform towards healthy communities now and beyond COVID-19. And again the impetus is sort of being like you know, in this moment, welcome to the table. I'm glad that you're, like, learning about this. Like, here's how we seize on what's already happening and sort mm-hmm. of, like, work together to keep collectively building towards a world in which these problems don't exist. Mm-hmm. And so I just, like, those sort of go beyond education but are connected because education is obviously a huge part of this. Totally. Um, this, is why I, this is why I do liberatory pedagogy because part of liberatory pedagogy is helping people realize that, the world that we live in is fundamentally unjust and we can do things together to change that. Yeah. And so like if things like UF letting students choose pass fail grades or drop courses without having to pay for the course like that should just always be a thing right, right. you know there should always be sort of these things that and, and going even further right like uh, the way the way that we sort of think about grading the way that grading is sort of tied I've talked about this a lot but the way that grading is tied to financial sort of circumstances um like what students are sort of able to excel and what students aren't um Oh yeah, the
0: K through twelve has a name for that. Is it opportunity gap? I think yeah. it's opportunity gap. I'm not. Sh- I think yeah, opportunity gap. Where, um, like right now, we are highly experiencing it because we are a private school, and right. so we have some students who are able to pay full tuition, and then we have some students who are on scholarship and financial aid. And therefore, they have different opportunities given to them at home and they have different Wi-Fi access and book access and things like that.
1: Yeah. It's like when I first – during my orientation, when we were given our like three days of training before we went to teach, um, they told us – they gave us a PowerPoint and they told us that the the, the, like average – uf student was like upper middle class coming from uh like a ivy or like has done a lot of aps or whatever kind of situation And has, like, this 4.0 GPA or higher because, you know, if you do IV, it, like, bumps your GPA up. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's just fundamentally not true. (laughs) You've invented this, like, mythical white rich student that you are basing all of your lesson plans around. Mm. Right? And there's so many kids that, you know, don't have access to stuff like I've talked about. And also, like, a lot of our students are on Bright Futures and that's a scholarship that you pay into, right, for Florida. And it's tied to your grades. So if you get bad grades, you lose your ability to go to college. Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't – like, I couldn't ethically in that context. Like, I can't – like, grading to me – like, unless grading is fully detached from – financial consequences it can't be the sort of open assessment that we want oh it to my be. gosh
0: it's like kind of the dream for us right now where like we've moved to like the ideal for grading is feedback right just giving feedback yeah. so i every project i just email every student an individual feedback thing and then we have switched to pass fail and for all classes and we've also switched to just standards based we talked about this on the grading and rubric episodes Yeah. Yeah. Just it's like it's all standards based so you can just give individual feedback and let them know if what specific things that they are excelling at and what things that they need to work a little bit harder in order to meet expectations but it's all like very feedback oriented to help students better their learning it's not punitive it's just Right. It's, like, great. <laughs> That's great. That's, like, what I would want. Like, <laughs> That's what I want so bad. This just be all the time? Just all the time?
1: <laughs> it could. <laughs> I, and it's, like, I, 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 it's so tricky being, a, you know, a precarious worker, like, a graduate student, too, because, like, we're required to turn – you know, we get eval- – our teaching gets evaluated. Mm-hmm. And they make us give them graded assignments. And if there isn't, like, a, quote, range of grades, you – get scolded for that. Evil. Yeah, evil. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it's evil. Anyway, um, and the other thing I want to say is, because, again, education is part of community, etc., um, especially for, I know, like, uh, some of the folks that listen are, like, educators who not like like the i'm talking i'm talking to the academic class here oh my academic class we we haven't lost any income and so like please do as much as you can community wise like i can't go out um and do sort of like on the ground mutual aid work because my roommate is high risk um but instead, what I've been doing is redistributing, especially that stimulus check, as much as I can, even though I don't get paid a lot. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, graduate students don't get paid very much. But I'm not losing any income. I'm not in danger of losing my housing. I'm not in danger of running out of food. So I'm going to redistribute as much as I possibly can. <laughs> like, fundamentally, just do that. Like yeah. And so, like, shout out to, there's a website, if you like, I don't know where to start. There's a website that's um, leveler, levele info which folks in who have lost their job or who are precarious service workers, for instance, sign up and you like click the distribute button, it gives you 10 people to PayPal $5 to. Mm, <laughs> like, cool. It literally makes it as easy as possible. And of course, shout outs to Gainesville's free grocery store, which I have been hope- trying to fundraise for. And we also have a Gainesville Barista Tips and a GainesvilleTip.org, which is for our uh, service workers. And, um, you know, there's like mutual aid, like I, critical resistance, right? I, I've talked about like the mutual aid, that uh, website, the town hall project, um, which documents like COVID specific mutual aid. Like it's literally like a map of the country and you can just find your state and find your city and see if there's anything happening that you can give to materially in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so not to like, obviously not everyone is in a position where they can redistribute. That's fine. But if you are, you know, you are. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's um, the F- Fang Collective and also Amor here in Rhode Island has been collecting money mm-hmm. to get people on bail. They're collecting bail money to get people out of yes. unsafe prison conditions. It's yeah. one I can think there's of. There's bail
1: money. We also we have the the Human Rights Coalition of Alachua has also been collecting money for undocumented families who aren't going to get cool. a stimulus check. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like there's a lot of... Y- you can find... <laughs> Someone to yeah, and also um, redistribute I redistribute too.
0: I know artists. It's likely yeah. that artists will start to feel this slower that the conventions being canceled and. Yes, uh, it's historical that cultural things usually are the one of the first things that if a economy goes down, cultural spending mm-hmm. lessens, and that's what artists are doing is contributing to a culture, and so there are also a lot of scholarships and grants. Um, That art, I don't know, or art organizations are currently putting together. Yeah. So on the other end, if you are an artist and you're seeing your income slow down or stop, there's a lot of things you could be applying to now.
1: Yeah. You can also, if you are an artist who's um, losing income, you can
0: sign up for that level or website too. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah. I, I just wanted to acknowledge sometimes, especially for freelancers, right? You don't get fired, yes. right? <laughs> it, but you do, yeah. It might it, 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 it might be slower, right? So, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of with con because it's it's going to be con season soon, except that there's not going to yeah. be any. Cons,
0: I think, yeah, so. there's going to be there's going to be kind of a long game um for, in this yeah. economy right now. So, yeah. I'm not sure. an economist. This is not an economy podcast, <laughs> but <Yeah>. I am. <laughs> <laughs> we're people that live in the world and who yes. also both lived through the 2008 recession. Yes. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> yeah. so thank you. Take care of yeah. each other. Take care of each other. Yeah. And take care of yourself so you can take mm-hmm. care of other people. So now it's time for letters to the editor, our regular segment where we uh, revisit past topics um, or maybe we get an email that you, that we read an email that you sent us. I got a nice letter um, from a college student asking for advice um, who listens to Drawing a Dialogue? Hello, I wrote them an email back, but it was really nice. It was talking about ways to become engaged in your community. Uh-huh. yeah, and I think I really appreciated um acknowledging that it can be difficult. Um, if you grew up in a place that didn't have a lot of community engagement, um, it can be right. hard, but it can also be overcome. And a lot of that actually has to do with getting involved with these organizations, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the times you feel like you want to help and a lot of that can maybe feel like you want to um, start to do something right away, but also um, meeting people mm-hmm. where they are and seeing what you can do for them and talking with them is uh, probably the best way to start. Finding a need to fill yeah. rather than t- making up a need. <laughs> exactly. And that's sort of I think what
1: like Ruth, Ruth Wilson Gilmore was talking about, right, mm-hmm. is like this This work has been – people have been doing this kind of work for Decades and decades and yeah. decades. Like, you know, it's like we aren't aware of it every time because very deliberately the structure of society tries to crush these sorts of things. But, like, the work is there. It's been going on. And you will always find more traction if you go to go to where the people have already been doing the work and see what they need.
0: Yeah, <laughs> instead of, and, instead I, of fe- and I think inst- it's valuable to, to, like, point out, actually, look at my notes from my webinar. Ooh. But – um, it's really important to say relationships is what is will heal a society, yes. right? It's relationships, yeah. not ideology. It's getting to know people. That is what is going to find bridges to help mm-hmm. create survival. And I know it can feel scary and also it can feel yes. like we aren't trying to say, this, is, uh, this has been going on and you've just been ignorant to it. <laughs> no, not at <laughs> what all. What we're trying to say is... Go and build these relationships. There's people who yeah. have been doing this and they want to meet you. Yes. <laughs> right? That's, they want more it's, it's comrades. The long, it's the long game. It's you got to build game. out and build for the future. Yeah. Like. So relationships are the beginning of this stuff. Get to know people. And I think people, if they're doing their work right, they want to get to know you too. Yeah. Definitely. So thanks. Thanks for writing the letter. Oh, Feel free you. to email us at dialogue at gmail.com. Uh, you can email us some more if you want. Yes, please. um So thank you, Downtown Boys, for their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. Get it off their Bandcamp. Last time I mentioned, Bandcamp had one day where they waived all the Bandcamp fees. I believe they're waiving it for almost all of May. So go Ooh. buy that album. If you've heard me say this 30 times now, fu- go buy that album. Um, what are you
1: doing? Why
0: haven't you bought it? What are you it? doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, make, sh- make it so all that money goes to the downtown, boys.
1: <laughs> um, So you can head over to drawingadialogue.com to view the citations um, for every episode, including this one. Drawing a Dialogue is hosted by Comic Art Ed, which is Kathy's comic art education website. That's very good um you can email us at drawing a dialogue at gmail.com you can tweet us at draw a dialogue you can
0: follow me on twitter at e-h-e-t-j-a um you can follow me at kathy g john c-a-t-h-y g-j-o-h-n i also started a youtube for for comic art com. so I'm going to start posting because, frankly, I have to record videos for my students anyway because I think it's a really beneficial way of making connections with my students in-, in addition to in-person conversations. So I may as well share them more out-, out with the world. So I have a YouTube channel now. I don't have enough subscribers to get my own URL, so you just have to go to my Twitter and find it. <laughs> <laughs> Excited for you to get your golden YouTube. YouTube, button. oh man, YouTube is so evil. It's they so really, funny. they they immediately reel you in with oh yeah incentives to oh, build yeah. your subscribers and blah 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 blah. Oh boy, it's an evil one. But I can't host videos on ComicArtEd.com dot com without uh, external hosting, yeah, that's so <laughs> that's why. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been reading
1: remus oh um so it's finals which means i haven't been doing anything but writing papers for of course a while ah um and playing animal crossing i don't have anything i've <laughs> literally just been...
0: what, have, what have you been reading kathy oh um so <laughs> oh <laughs> oh well since so you've asked um I've been reading just like a lot of manga. I've been ordering a lot of manga from bookshop.org which uh is a online book sales place, but they also put they support independent bookshops. So it's a good good alternative to Amazon. Ooh. Um I've been reading a lot of Akiko Higashimura's yeah. manga. So I've got I got all the like a bunch of Tokyo Terariba girls and I got um the new blank canvas one. Um so just a lot of manga. Nice. Oh actually I do have some <laughs> yeah i just remembered well so what have you been reading again remus because
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned manga i've been re-watching um revolutionary girl Utna because my partner hadn't seen it before oh. um so we've been watching it we watched b stars the first season of b stars which is also really good and now we're rewatching.
0: I, that's one of the mangas i've been
1: reading i need to read the manga i know the manga is really good but like i love Re- i have a revolutionary girl Utna tattoo so you know i love you do it. A very prominent one, too. It's on my finger.
0: It's not that prominent. <laughs> it's your finger. Yeah, but everyone just thinks it's a ring. <laughs> it's a very passable one. Yeah. Beastars is... I love the... I've i never... Ever since I was a kid, I never really watched anime. I'm, a, I'm such a comic book reader. That's who I am. No, the, the and, uh, manga looks... I mean, like, I have the
1: first volume, and I've had the first volume for a while. I just haven't, like... I don't have time to read for pleasure. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> It's very pleasurable. <laughs> I'll read <laughs> it. Left, now that I'm done with the semester, I'll probably read it.
0: It's going to take you half an hour. It's a comic. I know. It's so hard. My brain is so tired. It's true. It's true. Tired brain. No No thoughts. No thoughts. Head what is empty. It? Brain empty. No, th- no, no head empty. <laughs> okay. All right. Well. Uh, thank you for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. My, My name, name is Jackson. <laughs> Farewell to our incredible volunteers. Bye.